This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back. I'm Kent Smithers, a professor here at the Wharton School, and you're listening to your Money Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. For the rest of the show, you know the routine by now. I have a couple of financial advisors with me taking your calls about your own situation. So if you want to know how to invest your money, save for retirement, kids' college, paying on debt, budgeting, maybe just want to know if you can afford something in particular, really anything about your finances, your money. That's the show's name. Live on Tuesday, so grab the phone. Give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine zero four two seven eight six six. Welcome to the show, Ryan Vogel, who's a senior wealth advisor and partner at, at Private Wealth Management Group in Princeton, New Jersey. Previously worked with Vanguard Group. A Company we talk about lots, uh, you know, on the show in a quite favorable uh, way, and then he joined uh, Private Wealth Management Group in 2006 and became partner in 2013. He oversees the performance reporting and trading operations, and I'll go back to the phone lines in just a minute there uh, with with Ryan. Before going back to the phone line, uh, Ryan, uh, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about a bit about your firm and if you have a typical client, what's he or she like. Sure, Ken. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, really, I mean, with our, our firm, there's six of us right here up 95 in Princeton, and we just like to focus on our clients' lives, we ask them what's important, and use our knowledge as CFPs to get the answers they need to make some smart decisions. So we typically work with a lot of the uh, local executives in the, uh, the healthcare industry, a lot of uh, retiring professors at Princeton that we work with. So we help a wide range of people, but really we're just very fortunate to have such interesting and nice clients. Excellent. So uh, looking forward to uh, hearing what everyone wants to talk about. Yeah, fantastic. Again, I have Ryan Vogel on the line with me. Again, he's a senior wealth advisor and now partner at uh, Private Wealth Management Group in Princeton, New Jersey. Now it's a great time to get your questions answered about your money here at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 I promise to go to the phone lines. We'll do that with John calling from New York. How can we help you, John? Yeah, hi. Uh- my name's John. I'm in I'm in New York, and I, and I have a uh, first thing I'd like to say is is uh, thank you to the guy from Vanguard. It's been a pleasure having working with you guys. Uh, but my question is focused on my current employer. It's a Fidelity account, 401k, um, and as I started to learn more about the the plan, I see that it's pretty much only funds that have a high level of risk. I mean, understanding that I have a very low tolerance for risk. Uh, and and there's no cash stable. There's no cash equivalent. I called them. They said it's not offered. And I guess my question is, when this when this economy starts to tank, yeah. you know, what do I do? How, how how could a is that legal? And b how could I approach my employer and say, hey, I want a, you know, somewhat or relatively cash stable cash equivalent fund that's going to protect me as soon as this thing starts to go. Yeah, down. and just to be clear, you know, John, by the way, uh, you know, the law that dictates this, and it's called a risk, uh, it actually only it was set up uh, 
Uh, it's over 50 years no, ago now. Uh, it was actually set up mainly for defined benefit plans. But in any case, um, it only requires your employer offer three investment options. <laughs> and so uh, they're not required to do that. In fact, they only have to let you rebalance once a quarter under ERISA as well. So there, there's not an issue about legal uh, uh, stuff going on here. I mean, that, that, that stuff is usually pretty low hurdle, but really is about, um, you know, uh, uh, about options. And so, so, John, let me ask, understand, are you willing to accept a very, you know, um, you know, lower return? And don't get me wrong, that's, it, we, we, we on this show often, you know, point out that people really misunderstand, you know, the return to, to stocks. In the particular, they really do come with risk. That's your whole point here. It's, it's, in fact, economists don't buy the idea that, you know, stock market is, becomes less risky with, you know, long holding periods. That's not the reason why younger people should hold stocks. It's simply because they have a bit more human capital ahead of them. That's more like a bond. It's not because of really time horizon. Um, and so it, when it comes to, you know, but what you're willing to do, are you, you're willing to take, you know, a fund that gives you one, two, three, at most percent a year in exchange for very low risk? Definitely. You know, like I, you know, I mentioned the Vanguard uh, yeah. account that I have that, that I would say is my, uh, my medium to high risk sure. uh, account. Yeah. And then I, only because of the, uh, the, uh, the funds that are offered there and the, and the yeah. great success that I've had with those. But the, you know, this, this other account, I'm looking almost as it as I, I'm going to take the the match that I get from my employer and yeah. say, hey, that's my return. Sure, I'm happy with it. Let's put it into Great. something that's only going to get me, you know, even if it was a point or two, I'd be yeah, happy with that. yeah, but, absolutely. You know I mean, listen, stay, staying up with inflation is not, um, you know, it, it's not an easy task. I mean, anyway, so let me ask you, uh, how much money do you have in your tax deferred account, like your 401k, versus your uh, uh, Vanguard account or tax taxable account? Yeah, so that's probably about uh, I would say one eighty to two hundred. Wh- which one, the tax deferred or your four hundred one k or your Vanguard account? In the in the four hundred one k. Okay, in the four hundred one k, and how much do you have in your Vanguard account? I would say that's probably about uh, that's north of that. Okay, so like two hundred ish or something like that. Okay, and so it yeah. sounds like yeah. you are doing some asset location where basically you are trying to uh, hold most of your risk in your Vanguard account. Um, is, right. If you're in there with your Vanguard, you're probably holding a low cost passive index you know, fund that's not turning over and uh, creating that much income or capital gains. And your four hundred one k, you really want. To, it sounds like you're both from tax reasons, but just from um, you know risk reasons, you're trying to figure out how to put most of that into low risk. And you're saying that they don't offer a bond fund, they don't offer anything like that. It just Well, well, well they do, but when you look at, you know, what the, those funds did in 2007-2008, yeah. that's way be, way beyond my comfort level. Yeah, it, I mean. how much do they lose the funds that they they were off that are being offered? How much do they lose in 2007 uh, or 2008, let's say? I would say they lost probably Five to ten percent. Five to ten percent. All right. So you yeah. know that that was typical of a, of a bond fund. So the the point is they don't offer any short term bond 
uh, fun options, Correct. it sounds like. So, Ryan, you know, it, it's some of a constrained situation here. Uh, but any thoughts for John here? He's essentially, um, you know, I would say, you know, on one hand, 5 to 10% during 2008, not a huge loss, um, uh, relatively speaking, of course. Maybe that's just, you know, what he has to settle for is that type of um, uh, risk. But any thoughts about, you know, uh, uh, possible kind of maneuvering here? Yeah, I mean, first it touches on a, a pet peeve of mine with yeah. 401k options that offer five large cap growth funds and not much in the way of diversity as far as product yeah. lineup. So, um, yeah, I mean, one other, I mean, do they offer any target retirement funds by any chances in the plan? Do you know what those are, uh, John? These these are funds that often have a date in them, so they'll say something 2030, like if you're planning on retiring around 2030. Do you know, do they offer that? Yeah, they offer about ten of those, and and pr- they're pretty much dogs. Okay, all right, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So I mean, I mean that that's the only other alternative yeah. that I can think. I mean, I would certainly encourage you to. Um, there's something. There's a form online. It's a form 5500. You can um, look up who's responsible for the uh, the plan. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't. I don't think there's anything wrong with emailing them within your company, just kind of expressing your concerns about the the fund lineup. But I mean, especially with a 401k. I mean, it, yeah. it sounds like you're. Um, still want to focus on not not taking on too little risk. I mean, I understand that yeah. you, you want to take more risk with the Vanguard taxable account, sure. which is good for uh, tax planning purposes. But I mean, if you're, it's really good to have some type of, of balance. I mean, even in a down market, I mean, if you look at one of those target retirement funds that maybe has only 30 or 20 percent in stock and might have the underlying holdings within them, might be able to have some either uh, short-term tips uh, in inflation-protected yeah. securities or uh, some other short-term bonds that might provide a little bit of a, a balance during a, a down market. But um, putting your 401k money into a, a money market, unless you're looking to retire within the next year or two, I would encourage you to take on some risk, even if that means a, a 5 or 10% drop during a down market. Yeah, but, yeah. No, I think that's a fantastic advice. And John, it, it, well, that, here's what I'd say okay. is that there are a lot of funds uh, that became very popular after 2008 called you know stable value funds things like that. That The problem is, is that the fees associated with those funds, you would think, why would they be expensive? They actually were pretty uh, expensive and really kind of marketed themselves as kind of low cost, uh, low risk, I should say. Um, and that, that created a lot of comfort for people. The problem is the fees were pr- fairly high in those things and, and often. And the fees alone, when you, you say, okay, I'm in that fund for 10 years, well, that's a, that's you know that 5 to 10% drop that you're worried about just happened to you. It just it happened to accumulate in a cumulated way through higher fees. And so, you know, having a cheap bond fund, that's the thing that's probably even most important here is uh, having uh, access to a cheap bond fund. And yes, it's hard to get short-term duration bond funds in a retirement plan. It's not very common. I think that's okay. Um, I think, you know, uh, going through a 5 to 10% loss, a 2008-type style, um, not so bad. Um, and it, 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 uh, that, that part doesn't, you know, concern me so much. What I would do is, um, it, like you, uh, Ryan said, is you know certainly you can contact your employer, find out some options there. 
but you know, I want to get you a little bit more comfortable that uh, yes, it's really you know scary sometimes to look at a historic diagram, but the the the, the, the fees themselves don't look as scary because they're often very hard to find, even post two thousand twelve when you know reporting is supposed to be more clear in in uh, you know four hundred one k accounts. It's still hard to understand, but just keeping those fees low is going to be still the biggest uh, boon there. If you're still uncomfortable with all this, John, one possible option outside of uh, Ryan's good advice about the for, uh, Form uh, 5500, which is figuring out who's the what's called the record keeper and then the fund manager um, associated uh, to that. Often those are coupled together. Sometimes they're decoupled. Uh, but uh, find out who that is and so forth. Um, you can also find out if your 401k offers a discount brokerage window. Um, I'm not a big you know fan of recommending those for most people. But if your 401k, for example, doesn't offer uh, like a tips-based fund, what Ryan just mentioned, these are these are funds that it, it allow you to invest in government securities that uh, that actually will pay a pretty low rate, but then may have a second payment that's uh, tied to inflation. So they're they're really kind of a, the most risk-averse way you can go. Because believe it or not, it's not just the volatility of the market; it's really inflation. You know, two percent inflation over the next twenty-five years will erode your your value of your your balance by you know forty percent. It's a it's I call it the death by a thousand cuts. It's very compounding in its effect. Um, if you don't have access to a tips based fund, then you can uh, potentially get access through a discount brokerage window. It's more complicated, um, but it is one uh, possible way to go that opens yourself up to a, a little bit of a bigger universe. And lot four hundred one ks are not required to offer that option. Some do, um, but there um, you, you might want to check that out. But Again, I would be looking for bond funds. I'd be looking for tips funds, and uh, and then and then uh, I go from there. Is that helpful, John? Very, very helpful, and I and I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And I'm speaking again with Ryan Vogel, who's a senior wealth advisor and partner with Private Wealth Management Group. They're doing a great job answering your questions here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to. Aline uh, calling from, hopefully I got your name right, uh, calling from Colorado. How can we help you, Aline? Actually, it's Eileen. Eileen, sorry. um, That's okay. Um, Actually, my question pertains to my father-in-law who lives in Michigan. Yep. So um, he just opened his long-term care policy. He's currently in the waiting period for it to kick in. Yes. And he's got about a couple months. Um, And he is still in his home his condo just having light care come in and um, my my husband and I are wondering when he does go to assisted living because that's kind of the plan and you know things progress um, what to do with his condo should we sell it should we it it does have because he's in Michigan he does have the ladybird deed on it and I don't know how that affects it he has. So we're just kind of. Uh, repeat that. He has what fees? You broke up at that point. What type of fees? Um, I'm sorry. Um, a ladybird deed on the. Oh, uh, a deed. Home. Okay. Yep. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. So we're just wondering: should the the condo is worth currently about 160, mm-hmm. and so we're just the long term care policy is about 148, worth about 148. So, um, you know, this isn't. This is at least a year or two down the road. Yeah, yeah. What's his, 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 his current state? I mean, he, he may, you know, it may be 
it sounds like you know you're, you're right. That's what we call aging in place. That it's great that he's um, doing that uh, and trying to get help in the short term, um, and then you know eventually kind of graduating to assisted living. Keep in mind, by the way, a lot of people who go into um, you know skilled nursing often go back to assisted living. Some people go into assisted living actually. Um, you know, it, it turns out they only need it temporarily for a while. There's a lot of back and forth between it, even though we think of it's all kind of one direction. Uh, but it, how, how many years are we talking about you think he's going to be l- moving toward assisting living? And then after that, do you have a sense of, you know, going to skilled nursing? I mean, in other words, if you had to guess, what, what were we talking about the life cycle here? Well, he's 87 and a half right oh, now. Okay, yeah. Um, cognitively, still very intact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just he had a recent fall, ended up with stitches in his I head. See. He obviously needs more help. Um, and we know that the assisted living that he would like to move into has approximately a year waiting list. Ah, I see. I say okay. Which obviously, if he needed more help, he would have to pick a different living. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and if you didn't sell the condo, what 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 else would you do with it? I mean, if you waited, to, for example, until he goes to skilled nursing, and that could happen, you know, within uh, sometimes people really skip assisted living and go directly to skilled nursing. Sometimes they're in assisted living just for a few months before going to skilled nursing. I mean, what would you do with the condo at that point? Once you feel, you're pretty confident he's not coming back to it, what? Uh, outside of selling it, what would be your option? Well, he he would really like it to be an income-generating property, and he would like to rent it. Oh, I see. Um, unfortunately, we are out here, and yeah. that's just not going to work. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so it, it, the carrying cost on the condo is about um, maybe five, seven to $800 a month because right. of a $400 HOA fee would be the biggest part of that. Okay. Okay. So we could just let it sit until he needs the money or we could sell it. But I don't think renting it as income is a feasible idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, in, in terms of the beneficiary of the deed, uh, who is that you or who is the beneficiary of this deed right now? That would actually be my husband and his two siblings. Okay, okay. And there's no – are you guys kind of on the same page of, you know, uh, have you guys talked about it amongst yourselves? Um, well, my husband and I have talked about it. Unfortunately, um, his siblings aren't um, financially responsible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess is the best way I can put it. And my husband is the executor of the will. And, you know, his goal, my husband's goal – would be to make sure that my father-in-law has enough money for sure. continued care, however long that goes. Yeah, yeah. And you, you do have to keep in mind, you know, Medicaid, if your father ever uh, is, if his long-term care policy is never, isn't perfect, he may have to go on Medicaid. And there you do have a wealth test that usually does not include your house. Your primary uh, facility would include 
proceeds from a sale of that house. So, uh, but Ryan, your thoughts in terms of you know, um, let's let's take it two cases. One is the long-term care policy. It, it, again, they vary dramatically as a participating policy in, in what they provide and don't provide. Suppose they got him through uh, skilled nursing, um, so he doesn't have to use Medicaid for kind of uh, uh, nursing care. Um, your thoughts in terms of you know what to do with this property? It seems like, uh, in many ways, Eileen kind of answered her question. <laughs> it seems like that's probably the only option. But your thoughts? Right. I mean, it, it, if we're talking, if we're not getting into more asset protection, I mean, there's different things. I don't know if you've spoken, Eileen, with a, an attorney out in Michigan as far as what your father-in-law's goals are for this. Is it for purely for providing for his care and whatever he needs, or is it thinking about more around generational and type of transferring to your, your husband and his siblings? But um, besides, if, if when I'm hearing the, the question is, gee, do we sell or rent this? And it, it sounds to me like like, I mean, if it's for generating the the income, it depends on the rental market and what's available, and is that and what's your rate of return going to be over and above the the carrying cost for the property. And then there's also the the fact that you don't live in Michigan, and who's are you going to hire a management company to handle the rentals? So I, I think that it's not just the the finances of it, but also the 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 personal aspect of going along with being a, a landlord and, and renting out to people, and whether or not you, your husband, or your father-in-law want to deal with that type of additional complexity. So, I, so Eileen's, you know, I think that's great. In, in particular, Eileen's husband's the executor on this. He could mm-hmm. sell the property and figure out, you know, different ways of distributing in a way that, uh, you know, Eileen's or his siblings are, you know, not just blowing the money. What are some options there? As far as protecting the assets? Yeah, so, essentially yeah. They, they, they get their money, but maybe not all at once, let's say. Right. Well, there there's certain trusts that, that can be created as far as estate planning documents. Yeah. So that way you, you get the proceeds from the house. The money is, is put into trust for the benefit of the husband and uh, his two siblings. And that way the, you can put in different provisions on there that might have certain what they call spendthrift, spendthrift yeah. provisions where they're able to access uh, income from the, the trusts and uh, might be able to access it for different things like health or uh, just um, education or just general means and support and things of that nature. So that way they're not um, completely blowing through the available uh, cash that's uh, generated from the sale of the, the home. Yeah, and that's perfect. In particular, Eileen, here's a rule, I think, your two-step plan. The first one is really dig into that long-term care policy and figure out if your father goes into skilled nursing or father-in-law goes into skilled nursing, um, is how much protection is that plan really going to give? And in particular, is there a chance that he's going to need Medicaid? If there's a chance he's going to need Medicaid, that would be a reason to defer selling the property until he passes. And, and kind of instructing you how to gain the social uh, a safety net here, but it is uh, a very uh, a common strategy. You wait till you sell the house, uh, get some some you know um, value from the house, but it 
states, but Medicaid has both a wealth test and an income test. It allows for some exceptions, and one of those is a primary care uh, or a primary residence, I mean. And so as a result of that, it, but if uh, the, the residence won't be counted. But if you sell the property, then that becomes an asset of him. Even if you put it into a trust vehicle, things like that, um, he hasn't passed away yet, so it hasn't been transferred. So that's still his pro- property. Um, so really, but if on the other hand you're con- con- uh, convinced that the long-term care policy will be adequate protection for a skilled private uh, facility, then you could co- comfortably um, sell the house. But I would really make sure of that first. And then secondly, um, before that house is, uh, is sold, really make sure uh, your husband's siblings agree to that the money is deposited into a trust. It, uh, it's really to their benefit that it's associated with things like spendthrift policies to really help protect them throughout the retirement, and it can be uh, stated in a positive way. So thanks so much for calling, Ryan. We're going to take a quick break. I promise we'll be going right back to the phone lines right after this quick break. Speak with Ryan Vogel, Senior Wealth Advisor, Partner of uh, Private Wealth Management. Give me a call here at one 844 Come back right after this quick break. You're listening to Your Money on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Ken Smethers. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Your Money. Ken Smethers, Business Radio here on Sirius XM 111. We're going to the second hour of our show, Your Money. As a reminder, we're live every Tuesday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern, repeated throughout the week. So if you want to know if maybe if you can afford something in particular or just have a question about your investments, really anything uh, related to your personal finances, maybe if you uh, can afford to put your kid through college or just have an older parent and you're trying to figure out how to uh, move them through things like skilled nursing, really anything related to your finances. Here with me in this segment is Ryan Vogel, the Senior Wealth Advisor and Partner of Private Wealth Management uh, Group in Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah, live on Tuesday, so grab the phone. Give me a call here at one eight four four 844 And I promise to go back to the phone lines. Do that right now with Laura calling from PA. How can I help you, Laura? Hi, how are you tonight? Great, great. Good. Um, so I have been paying off my student loans for a little over a decade now. Mm. Um, I'm starting to see the the end in sight, a little tiny glimmer of hope. Good. Um, I have a car. I have a credit card. I have a house. I have all of the usual things. Um, and so someone that I am in an association with, a professional association, approached me a little while ago about this firm called Debt Shredder. Mm-hmm. Um, that is through another company called Shop Financial. And um, I guess she is one of their representatives on the side. And um, so I've been, you know, I watched their webinar. I've done a little bit of Googling on them. Um, they sent me some sort of analysis worksheet that I could fill out um, to get kind of my my analysis, for lack of a better word. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I just am a little hesitant. So I'm just curious if you've heard of it, if you've heard anything good, anything bad, um, yeah. and if anything along those lines is kind of worth my time to help make sure that I am paying off all of my debts in a correct strategy and yeah. trying to you know, not waste any money. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you got pitched on this um, does suge- suggest that they are probably a for-profit company. And the space, yeah. This space is full of a lot of companies that – you know, are um, even some of them call themselves, you know, for pro or nonprofit. In fact, if 
you look for their Form 990 online, they, in fact, are um, nowhere to be found because they're often are for a profit. You have to just be very kind of careful about it. Let me ask you, Laura, what is your actual goal here? Like, I mean, give me some facts and we'll go from there. Uh, what's your your student loan, uh, your car, your credit card, your house? Uh, tell me what the, the current balance is. Just ballpark them for me. And then what your interest rate is on those different uh, loans. So, uh, so g- g- give me the rundown there. Okay. And this is not going to be scientific. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> ballpark right. it. Uh, um, so my student loans were all private when I graduated. Yep. I only recently was able to consolidate them. Okay. Um, so I have about four years left on that loan. Uh, it's through SoFi, and it's about like a 7.5% um, interest rate on and, that. And what's the balance? What's the actual dollar balance? I want to say the balance is around 45. 45000 Okay. And yeah. tell me about the car. Uh, the car is still owe about ten thousand on. And what's the interest rate? I think it's like three and a half or four percent. Okay. And what, the credit card? Um, I have a five thousand dollar balance on my credit card, mm. and I'm paying six percent interest on that. And that's fixed for a while, or is that going to uh, tweak up after a while? No, that's uh, fixed. Okay. And what about their house? Uh, we've only been in the house for two years. Okay. So we got a good rate on the house, which is. Like 4%, but Four. our, yeah. Okay, and that's a big balance, and I assume that's fixed yeah. over the next, you know, 28 years or so. Okay. Um, right. All right, so it, then is your strategy just to figure, is, is what you're trying to figure out what is your best strategy for paying down these debts, or is it a case that you're having a, a hard time paying down these these debts? Uh, what is the ultimate that your goal here? I just want to make sure that I'm paying them down smart. Yeah. So I don't have trouble paying them. I just want to make sure, you know, all of the interest rates are right around the same amount. Right. So I feel like, you know, picking the one with the highest interest rate kind of isn't really a strategy for me. And I just want to make sure that I'm allocating my money the best way that I can for my – And why don't – and why is the, is the reason why you don't think picking the highest interest rate one the, the right strategy for you? What, what's your thinking about that? Um. I think just because they're so close. Okay. All right. It's kind of like just swinging in the dark. <laughs> okay. And let me ask you, in terms of the student loan, because that's the one that you said was the highest interest rate at 7.5%. It's about 150 basis points next higher than your next highest, and that was your credit card. I mean, is there any reason why that would somehow uh, be reduced, the student loan balance would be reduced for, for some other reason that you're doing some nonprofit work, it's forgivable, it's... Uh, is there anything else kind of going on there? I mean, uh, you, you said it's a private loan, so it's unlikely those things are going to be applicable. I just want to make sure. Yeah, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's fine. Sometimes, you know, people work for an employer. Part of the benefit is that, you know, they get something uh, toward a student loan if they're doing, you know, charitable work, things like that. I just want to make sure about that. So, Ryan, we often do, in fact, talk about interest ranking on this show. And, you know, some people do advocate the idea of a snowball effect where you just do the smallest loans first. It get the psychological win. I generally try to talk people out of it unless it's a it's a really absolutely necessary versus kind of doing nothing on their debt to get that psychological win. But it really is, you know, we t- typically uh, talk about interest ranking. What your, what's your general approach? Assuming that it sounds like Laura's not having a problem um, getting motivated to pay down these loans, hence her call. Um, so what is your uh, preferred approach uh, to uh, paying down loans? 
do start with the highest interest rate. I mean, even the small differences make a huge difference yeah. over time. But my two quick questions for Laura. One, how's your credit rating, Laura? Uh, I wouldn't call it stellar, but it's good. Okay. Because my, my first thought is paying 6% on the credit cards. I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of cards out there that offer a higher rate. But, I mean, I know lots of people that get uh, temporary offers for things like 0% financing yeah. over a year or 18 months or something like that. So if you have the cash flow and the availability to do a, a transfer to a 0% card and you're able to pay off that 5000 at nothing, I mean, that, that could certainly be a win. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, another question about your house. Did you put 20% down or did you put in a, a little bit more? down or when you bought it? A little bit less down. We're paying some PMI, um, but once we're up to the 20%, then that PMI payment will drop off of our monthly mortgage payment. Because my other, my other thought process now, I mean, interest rates are starting to rise. If you had a little bit of home equity, you can some people can use a, um, a home equity loan and get a lower rate and are able to consolidate debt. That is, uh, um, I mean, you get your mortgage interest is deductible, so it, it's helpful for tax purposes. But um, of course, that's already one of your lower rate uh, debt items. So I, I would still definitely look into potentially doing a swap for the credit card and get a better rate as long as you can pay it off. Because if you don't pay it off within that time frame, then the rate jumps to something much higher, so it's not yeah. worth it. So, uh, But other than that, I would just work on chipping away at that student loan at seven and a half as best you can. Yeah. It, 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 so where I it come down to this, and I think that's a fantastic advice, uh, Laura, it, we, it, we typically do advocate interest ranking, and the idea is that you take your highest one, which is your seven and a half percent, you tr- try to maximize how much payment you can make well above the minimum on that one, making the minimum payments on the other ones um, along the way. And once you, you know, get that rid of that student loan, um, you, you know, this, yeah, it's going to take a while. Um, it's not going to be as, you know, as easy as, as some of the smaller ones. Um, so that you're not going to get that kind of psychological win. But from a financial perspective, the idea would be like if, even the difference between seven and a half and six percent, you say, what's the big deal? Well, that's a 150 basis points per year. 1.5% compound that over time, that actually is a big deal. Um, but And so uh, that strategy of interest rate ranking is typically how you save the most money. Um, again, you, you always start uh, with the highest uh, interest rate one, uh, make as much payment as possible, making the minimum required payments in the other words. Uh, it, that works really well, especially for fixed rate um, loans, like your student, your house, maybe your car, if that, I assume that's a fixed rate loan. The credit card one is the one that concerns me um, because it's often not the case that that 6% is truly fixed for a while. Um, It could be fixed for, you know, just your next six months, nine months, a year or so forth. But there's often a period where that kind of wears away and then there's a big jump uh, on that one. And so really try to figure out the facts there. Is that truly uh, fixed uh, for that $5,000 or is it going to reset? If it's resetting, then that may take the priority even though, like if it could reset to 12 13%, then I would probably prioritize that one. It's clo- Like you said, you know, it's closer to the student loan, uh, but if it's truly fixed, um, then I'm going to still prioritize the student loan, even though you don't quite get the psychological uh, win. But there's nothing stopping you from doing what Ryan just said, and that is going for uh, a transfer, and that is you, you transfer those balances to a new card, often at 
12% or some teaser. Be careful and make sure you read the fine print. Sometimes there are transfer charges associated with that. Sometimes not. The new company is just willing to give you a low-cost loan just as a, you know part of their marketing. They, they know um, you'll stick with them over a longer period of time after, even after that loan is paid off and so that they're willing to kind of take that, that, that loss uh, going on. But you really want to look at the fine print. Is there a fixed um, uh, a, a charge for doing that transfer and how long is, does that 0% or something? teaser rate. How does how long does it really uh, uh, last uh, for? Um, then finally, on the PMI one, that was a great question by Ryan. And if you told me that you are just you know a few payments away from getting to your twenty percent, that that may change the calculus a little bit. Where you'd want to do more in your house, um, just simply be just to get to that twenty percent. But if you're telling me you're still you know three or four years away from getting that uh, getting to that twenty percent um, uh, uh, with your minimum house payments, then that probably does go back and suggest that you know the student loan is the one that uh, is uh, it deserves the, the higher priority. Um, here, so it really comes. Th- so on the uh, the house one, that uh, really comes. You know how close you are to PMI, because unfortunately, that's that's the thing. That's it's either you you can get rid of it or you don't get rid of it. It's not it, there's no kind of gradient there. Um, and and so if you're if you can get rid of it pretty soon, then I would prioritize that one. But if you're still talking about four years away, something like that, then I would be prioritizing the student loan. And then finally, you know, if you do use a HELOC loan, a couple points there. Um, HELOC is, you know, borrowing against your equity. Um, you do keep in mind that in some cases that that does – if you do ever have a credit issue, um, that does potentially expose your house uh, to forfeiture where it may not have been, depending on the homestead provisions in your state and so forth, um, if, if, or wiping out credit card. And then the, the interest – a lot of people don't realize this, but the interest on the HELOC is tax deductible, provided it's used for home improvement. It is true. The IRS really doesn't have the manpower to check on that. Um, but it's a lot of people tax deduct it anyway. But it really is for home improvement. And the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, just did some uh, changes to the HELOC as well. And so um, I, I would put that off uh, kind of as your last best option here. I would really focus on what Ryan said is the transfer to the 0% and uh, and then checking to see how close you are to PMI. Other than that, those exceptions, you know, I, I would, really would stick to interest rate rankings simply because, yes, I know, I understand the point. You want the emotional high, peeling off one of these loans, the smaller balance ones. But from a financial perspective, it really does make sense to rank by interest rate. Is that helpful, Laura? It really does. I really appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for calling. Really appreciate it. And again, speaking with Ryan Vogel, Senior Wealth Advisor and Partner at Private Wealth Management Group, Princeton, New Jersey, doing a great job answering your questions here. Uh, Give us a call here at 1-844-WORTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me go to Corey calling from New York. How can I help you, Corey? Hi. How are you guys? Good. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Good. So I have a question about my mother's finances. She just will be turning 70, and Mm. I hate annuities. And she somehow, she never told me, got into an annuity about seven or eight years ago. Mm. And I met with her and her advisor the other day, and it looks like as of November of this year, so almost when she'll be essentially 70 and a half and getting Social Security, um, 
the annuity will be essentially capped out and there will be no more fees if she wanted to take the whole payment. So there's no, uh, the provision is gone after, I guess, seven years. So my question was, essentially, I think it's about an $80,000 annuity and the income that's supposed to be generated is about $5,000 a year. She's currently still working. Um, She does teaching at a nursery school. And I was thinking that she doesn't need the money right now. And I don't know if it's a better decision to take the lump sum and invest it somewhere else and, you know, some other securities or tips or whatever it might be, or just have it because it can't grow anymore. Um, Just habit available. I didn't even know she has to start drawing it. That, that's the other thing I, I wasn't sure about. Yeah. So, so, Corey, it sounds like what's called the wear-away period has uh, expired. Uh, but they told you if you were to walk away with the money, uh, now the cash value would be $80,000. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And then, you know, it sounds like it's delivering right now about $5,000 a year. Is that correct? She hasn't taken any portion but, of it yet. But if it but, were if it were to, it would be correct. about $5,000 a year. Yeah, and just to be clear, if I understand correctly, is this a life annuity that would keep paying until she passes, or is it what's called a certain year annuity? In other words, is this a, a, did you see terms like variable annuity, or did you, was it called a fixed annuity? It was a fixed annuity. Okay. would be the payment for the rest of her life. Okay. So. Yeah, because that's, that's important. I'm sure it doesn't have an inflation rider on it, uh, but at the same time, you're talking about a payout uh, each year of about 6.25% of the current cash value and you know something that would could potentially pay out for the rest of her life as an insurance product. Um, and, and so uh, on one hand, inflation will erode the value uh, over time. Um, do keep, so I'm, I really am assuming, because this is really important, that the $80,000 is really the walk away. So even sometimes the wear out period is, is, is gone. There still is what's called surrender fees and so forth. Um, that uh, there's other ways that um, you know the surrender fees are often very high during the wear, wear away period, but they can still uh, be things uh, there. So I'm really assuming here that this is truly um, uh, 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 just the kind of the walk away um, uh, uh, value. Uh, here and the healthier mother uh, is there any reason to think she's not healthy and she, she couldn't potentially live for a long time? No, um, like I said, All she's right. still working, but probably in a couple of years she she'll, she will be retiring. Yep. So, um, so she's so age. I was wondering about that. Income. And she hasn't started uh, taking Social Security yet. She's going to take it. No, she she. You know, we talked about this earlier. Yeah. We talked about it earlier about maxing it out. So she yeah. left it till. 70 and a half and whatever, I'm not sure what her benefit is, but um, it's the max. Yep, yep. Um, it's just no point waiting beyond 70, uh, but n- a- absolutely. And so at 70 and a half, she also will have some RMDs that she has to worry about. What's her other savings looking like uh, beyond Social Security and this annuity? Yeah, so she has a 401k yeah. um, or a 403b uh, through work that's up around about 100000 uh-huh. Um She has um, an IRA outside that's around 60000 Yeah. Um, she does – most of her equity is in her home. Yeah. It's about 750000 Yeah. Um, it's an apartment, but 
Um, it can't be rented out, so maybe a reverse mortgage. I don't know. But so you could some s- other little savings she has too, um, just like a, a savings account with sure. another thirty thousand. But, but she could sell the home. At, I assume she can sell the home at some point and uh, capture most of that seven hundred thousand. Is that right? She could. Okay. Um, except she does. She's been very adamant about not moving. All right. In. No, I get that. I get that. Do you know what her City uh, Apartments? Sure. Company, yeah. Oh yeah. Do, do you know what so. her monthly expenses are? Uh, uh, roughly speaking, um, total for yeah. everything or just the apartment? Uh, no. Uh, well, is she still making a uh, payment on the apartment? No, but there, you know, there's fee- monthly fees. Sure. All right. So include that, including the, cl- kind of the HOA and that type of stuff and food and so yeah. forth. Do you know approximately? It's it's approximately about three thousand dollars a month. Three thousand dollars a month. Okay, and she's been working her whole whole life, so she could be, you know, Social Security itself could, you know. Do you have any sense there? Um, not her whole life. She's been on and off. So, um, right. but she she's not relying just on the Social Security. She's yep. definitely going to have to take an RMD from uh, her IRA. Yep. Yep. Um, but okay, she also has other. Uh, you know, savings as well too. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think that's what it, she's trying to work. Yeah, on and I think getting her, you know, maybe reposition that home because that's a big asset that could be uh, uh, quite uh, valuable. So, Ryan, your thoughts in terms of this fixed annuity? Let's assume it's a fixed annuity, um, and these, you know, I tend to bash the variable annuities. The fixed annuities can can be a complement to Social Security. It's not going to give the inflation rider, of course. Uh, uh, that Social Security provides, uh, whereas you know, fixed annuity can actually provide you know a true kind of a true insurance uh, uh, value. Um, your your thoughts about uh, given that she has this making five thousand bucks a year on an eighty thousand dollar kind of call it principal to be loose about it. Your sense about does it make sense to keep that or to uh, not keep it? Yeah, I mean, five thousand on eighty is that, that's really not that bad if yeah. that's the, truly the numbers for yeah. an annuitized for life. I mean, for the lump sum option, I mean, you, Kent's right. You absolutely want to double check around, and make sure you're through any surrender fees. But do you have any sense of what the basis is and what type of tax that you might have to take for the uh, taking the lump sum? Um, I know she's in she's in one of the lower brackets, but I definitely know there's no surrender fees. But I don't know what the tax. Uh, you know the basis is for yeah, so how much money she she put in over the years or in a lump sum in the beginning. That, that would be a good in, a piece of information to to see because I mean I think that plays into the calculus as well when trying to figure out. I mean, can you do better than generating taking that eighty thousand, turning around and investing it somewhere else? Can you do better than five thousand and at what risk level? But I mean, between what you're describing so far, I mean, your mom's going to get a pretty big security a social yeah. security benefit regardless. I mean, it, it, depending upon on her income, but I mean, deferring at seventy. I mean, yeah. she's gotten all those years of eight percent increases. I mean, if her expenses are truly thirty-six thousand a year, I, I can't imagine she's going to get less than twenty twenty-five from Social Security. Right. This brings it up to another five. You're, you're not really going to have to draw that hard on the the four hundred three B and IRA, especially for goals to stay in their existing place. I mean, sticking with it. I mean. Taking yeah. a look at all the facts you're providing, I mean, having that income and having a diversity of sources of income, especially for someone if she has these consistent uh, expenses associated with the apartment, it it's, doesn't sound that bad to me. Yeah. I mean, believe me, I don't like annuities either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the annuities, I, I, I'm, uh, you know, uh, if you can get a fixed annuity at a, a low cost, um, um, you know, I th- that it, 
that's that can really have true insurance values. It's just that the vast majority out there are, are variable annuities that really provide minimal insurance value, and there are often so many gimmicks and costs associated with that. So, but you know, Corey, associated uh, if given the information that you gave uh, me, I, I per and the, the other facts. I mean, I personally uh, would be holding on to that annuity. Um, besides, it's just the tax issues. It, one of the values that a fixed annuity gives um, is not just a return on assets. It's, it's just, uh, the reason why this return looks so so high um, is, especially on a risk-adjusted basis, that's a pretty high return, is because you're, uh, implicitly in there, she's getting what's called a mortality credit. In particular, some people who annuitize are not going to live as long, and therefore, you know, they forfeit that $80,000, for example, if they die early. But the survivors, you know, this is where the insurance kicks in. The survivors, therefore, get a higher return as a result of that. It's kind of like you buy homeowner's insurance, or chances are 99% chance you're never going to recover the payments on your home, um, but, but the, on your home insurance. But, you know, that 1%, if it happens, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty devastating uh, event. Here, you know, if she does live a long time, having this product that keeps paying out uh, until she dies is is quite valu- valuable. Its its value will decrease over time because of inflation, where uh, Social Security will keep up, but her needs will also change over time. They're not going to stay at that three thousand dollars. She's probably you know maybe HOA and other uh, minor things over time, and plus then she has these other assets uh, uh, in her four hundred three b and IRA and so forth. That will be useful for some type of out-of-pocket medical expenses, things like that. And then, you know, worst-case scenario, uh, she does finally give uh, give in to, you know, uh, skilled nursing, things like that. And the home will be very uh, – assuming that she doesn't want to go into Medicaid at that point, which exempts the home from, from the calculation. Uh, but if she wants to go in to get a private skilled nursing facility, the home can really uh, help finance that. So I, I based on the information you provided uh, – um, yeah, my my uh, instinct would be to stick with the fixed annuity. There's a guy on my website, KentonMoney.com. He's a fee-only actuary. Um, his name's Scott Witt, that he does these calculations in a completely transparent fee-only ba- fee uh, way, um, usually for much bigger policies than this, but he's that's another option. You could pay him to do some calculations. But based on what you've given me so far, I, I would my inclination would be, be to uh, uh, stick with it, uh, stick with the annuity. So thanks so much for calling, Corey. I really appreciate the call. And uh, uh, in this segment, we'll go back to the phone lines right after this quick break. Ryan, uh, fantastic job. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, I appreciate it. It was nice uh, taking the call. Thanks, Ken. And you can find out more about Ryan Vogel by uh, going to his website, which is simply myprivatewealth.com. Again, myprivatewealth.com. You're listening to Your Money, Ken Smith's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 